Some things are no longer that thing if a key component is taken away. For instance, in our house, for me, Thanksgiving is no longer Thanksgiving without cheese grits. Okay, for serious, take out tackling and you don't have football. Take out any form of takedowns and you don't have wrestling. Take out singing and you just don't have a musical. There are certain things that have key components and if you take out that component, you no longer have that thing. You know what I'm saying. And that holds true in Christianity too. There are certain core beliefs that if they're not there or if they're not actually true, then Christianity is no longer Christianity. And what I mean when I say that is that Christianity becomes a farce, an illusion, a joke. This morning I hope to persuade you of the importance and the preciousness of the resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body, the reality that your bones will actually come to life again one day. This truth undergirds Christianity and without it, our faith is worthless. So if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, this message is for you. Your future holds two possibilities. One is a real, physical, embodied eternity in God's renewed world where he reigns and every heartache and hurt are gone. Two, is a real, physical, embodied eternity in a place of torment and pain where heartache and hurt are the only thing that you will know because you will forever be separated from the very source of good, God himself. Where do you want to spend eternity? Today's message is for you. And Christian. This message is for you because if there's one thing you probably don't spend enough time thinking about, it's your certain and secure future. Paul wants you to focus on this this morning because it enlivens your faith. It gives you certainty. It gives you hope. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 12, as we continue in this series. That's on page 961 in the blue Bibles that are there in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. I've got three main points this morning. Number one, there's no salvation if there's no resurrection. That's verses 12 through 19. Number two, but there is a resurrection. That's 20 through 28. And then number three, there's no sense to the Christian life 
if there's no resurrection. That's 29 through 34. Let's read 12 through 19 together. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The church in Corinth has got a little problem going on. There are folks in the church actually thinking there's no resurrection of the dead. You just see that right there on the surface of the text in verse 12. How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, they're they're not struggling with Jesus' resurrection. That's clear from last week's text, which is all about the resurrection of Jesus. And verse 1 of 15 says that's part of the gospel, and it says they've believed that gospel. So they believe in Jesus' resurrection, but some of them are saying there's no resurrection of the body for Christians. This reflects the context these new believers are coming out of. In the Greco-Roman world, mostly, mostly people believed that the soul is immortal and the body perishes. So that wrong thinking is still just kind of lodged in the minds of some at church. And I think you can probably understand this. Sometimes we new Christians, when we come to Christ, we might believe things that are contrary to Scripture because it's just what we've always been taught. Take evolution. It's a foregone conclusion for most in our culture, a dear pastor friend of mine told me that he, when he became a Christian, he was shocked to find out that evolution actually isn't true. I think moving forward, we're going to see this in spades in regards to gender. Our culture is so confused about gender, we, we don't even really know how to define a boy or a girl. So what do we do with all that? Well, we come along, new believers, we come alongside them and we disciple them. We help them to submit their thoughts to Scripture and let Scripture define their reality. And that's what Paul is about to do right here. The first thing he wants to do to bring them around on this is to show that Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are bound up together. They're like ham and eggs. They go together. Look at 13 again. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. This is key. 
want you to notice what he's doing. He is saying that Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are bound up together. In other words, if one is true, then the other is true. And if one isn't true, then the other isn't true either. They go together. That's why he keeps interweaving them together throughout the whole passage. Verse 15. We testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now, why does he do this? Why tie these things together? One, because they believe that Christ rose from the grave. They believe that. That's not an issue for them. So he's taking that and essentially saying, if this is true, and it is, and you already believe it, then this is also true. And you need to believe it. Jesus' dead, decaying body rose to life, and yours will too. You don't have one without the other. So number one, he takes something they believe in, Christ's resurrection. And then he reasons with them to show them how it leads to their resurrection. But then two, and this is precious for every Christian to reflect on in this room. The truth underneath this is that everything that belongs to Jesus Christ belongs to you too. When you become a Christian... You are joined to Christ like a wife is joined to her husband. And everything that belongs to Christ now also belongs to you. Just like everything belonging to the husband belongs to the wife too when they're married. And so Christ's righteousness is your righteousness. Because he's given it to you. It's yours. And so Christ's relationship with the Father, this perfect fellowship and peace and acceptance, his relationship with the Father is now your relationship with the Father. Not because you've earned it, but because he earned it. And because you're in him, it's given to you. And so Christ's glorious inheritance is your glorious inheritance. And so Christ's victory over sin and death is your victory over sin and death. And so Christ's bodily resurrection from the grave ensures your bodily resurrection from the grave. Everything belonging to Christ now belongs to you because you're joined to him. Amen. Now, have you ever done a thought experiment in your mind, and kind of just trotted out all of the second and third order effects that would follow if something were in fact true. Let's do that now. Here are the horrific consequences if the resurrection isn't in fact true. Number one, my preaching and your faith are vain. Pick up in 13 again. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Vain means useless. Vain means empty. 
Vain means worthless. If the resurrection isn't true, then my preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. If it's not true, then what I've preached and what you've believed based on my preaching turns out to be like one of those 50 cent gadgets at the dollar store that doesn't even work. Second, Paul becomes, and I become, and anyone who gives himself to gospel proclamation becomes an outright liar. Pick up in 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So if the resurrection's not true, I'm a liar. And you know what? All of you, brothers and sisters, who proclaim the gospel to those who don't know Christ, you're liars too. We're all a bunch of liars because what have we proclaimed? That Christ has risen. But if Christ, but if the dead don't rise, then Christ hasn't risen. So then we're essentially guilty of false advertising. Third, and it's getting worse, your faith is useless and you are still in your sins. Pick back up in 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Feudal means useless, powerless. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is useless. Do you know why that is? It's because the resurrection is the proof that God accepted Christ's payment for your sins. Romans 4 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses And raised for our justification. Now my guess is that you probably don't typically associate Jesus' resurrection with justification. You probably associate death with his justification. But it's both. No resurrection of Christ. No justification. What's justification? It means that through faith in Christ... Your sins are forgiven, and God sees you as perfectly holy. Justification means that your sins are forgiven, and that God sees you as perfectly holy. Justification is the most precious truth in Christianity. But if Christ wasn't raised, then you're not justified. If Christ hasn't been raised, you're still in your sins. You haven't been forgiven, which leads to the next point. Those who have fallen asleep will face judgment. Look at verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that's just a phrase that refers to believers who've died. Believers who've died are those who have fallen asleep. So, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, what happens to them? They have perished. Perished is the opposite of salvation. 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To perish is to be condemned. 
And so if the resurrection isn't true, if believers don't rise from the grave, that means the only future that awaits you, Christian, is eternal darkness and destruction. Which honestly just makes us pathetic. Paul says in 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here we are. As followers of Christ, we live our lives not for the here and now, but for the hereafter. Our lives here are like a continual swimming upstream. You feel that, don't you? Saying no to the world, the flesh, and the devil is not easy. Walking the narrow road that leads to life is not easy. Denying yourself and taking up your cross is not easy. But this is what Jesus demands. Lay it down now that you may gain it later. But if later never comes, then what a tragedy. It is all for nothing. If in Christ only we have hope in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. You know what? If the resurrection isn't true, what we should do is shut this service down right now. Let's not even finish this show. Let's forget the potluck. Let's forget the meeting. Forget everything. Sell the building. Do something else with your Sunday because everything we do is a sham. If the resurrection isn't true. I feel depressed. (laughs) And I hope you do too. That's how the Lord wants you to feel. He, He wants you to feel the dark consequences of this terrible, damnable lie. And then once you feel it, he wants to drive it away with the blazing light of the next few verses. The essence of 12 through 19 is no resurrection, no salvation. The essence of 20 through 28 is, but there is a resurrection. Look at 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. You gardeners know this. A first fruit is a foretaste of more to come. The first fruit of your tomatoes in your garden promise a harvest of tomatoes in the future. Christ has been raised as the first fruit. Not the only fruit, the first fruit. That means all who've fallen asleep in Christ are soon to rise. And not only is Christ the first fruit, He's the last Adam. Take a look at 21 again. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. There are two heads of the human race. There's Adam and there's Christ. Through Adam is death. God made Adam, 
placed him in the garden, charged him to rule over creation with his bride. But Adam sinned and death entered the world. Now, all of us, every single one of us is connected to Adam. By virtue of being born, simply being born, we are connected to him and his destiny is our destiny, death. But there's another head of the human race, Christ. And unlike Adam, Christ obeyed God. And unlike Adam, Christ obeyed God in every way, even to the point of dying on the cross in the place of sinners, and as a result, God raised him from the grave. Now, by virtue of being born, you are in Adam. His destiny, your destiny. But by virtue of being born again, you are in Christ. And his destiny is your destiny. That's the point of these verses. Through Adam came death. Through Christ comes life. All who are connected to Adam will die. You will experience eternal judgment, but all who are connected to Christ will live. Just as Christ rose to life eternal, so too will you. By the way, just at first blush, This text could be used to support the heresy of universalism. I don't know if you've ever heard that word. Universalism is the, is the lie that says everybody is accepted by God in the end. And I kind of get how you might think that from the text at first blush. If you're looking at verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So you look at that and you think, well, doesn't all mean all? Well, when it comes to Adam, yes. All are connected to him. But when it comes to Christ, no. The all there doesn't mean everybody. It means everybody who belongs to him. And verse 23 makes that clear. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to him. And so the all who are made alive here are those who belong to him, those who repent and believe. All of the human race is connected to Adam. Only those who repent and believe are connected to Christ. Now, there is an order to how the resurrection is going to work. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, just pause me for a second. Just step out of the text. Let me just tell you, my guess is that some of you are probably a little bit fuzzy when it comes to what happens when you die. Here's the deal. When you die, your body goes into the ground, it decays, but your spirit goes to be with the Lord. That's what happens when you die right now. Your body, if you're in Christ, is in the ground decaying. Your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. However, that is not the end of things. When Christ returns, 
your body will rise from the grave. And I don't care if it's been eaten by worms in the ground or if the ashes have been dispersed in Lake Champlain. When Christ returns, your body will rise and you will live an eternal, enfleshed, real, bodily experience. And let me explain this further in verses 23 through 28. I'm going to use those verses to help me. Look at 23 again. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Very simply, friends, this tells us where the world is going, where the future is going. Do you ever find yourself troubled by what's going to take place in the future? I talk to you. I know you do. Read this again. Meditate on this. This is the best news you could ever read. The story of humanity since the fall of Adam is a story about rebellion and death. Adam was to rule over God's creation with his bride. Sin came in and wrecked everything. But Christ's resurrection is the beginning of the remaking of all things. Do you know where history is headed? Right now, Right now, Christ's kingdom is advancing. I know it may not always feel like that. But believe me, Christ's kingdom is advancing right now. He is saving a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. His gospel goes forth in every corner of the world. And he is subduing those who were once his enemies. You and I were once his enemies. Right now, he is subduing his enemies by offering terms of peace to all who will hear. He is like the warrior kings of old who before they took a city announced terms of peace to all who would lay down their arms and switch allegiance and come to him. He offers terms of peace to all who would respond in faith and believe in his son. But one day that offer of peace will end. And Christ will return, beloved. And when he returns, God the Father will subject all things, everything under Jesus' feet. He will destroy every rule and every authority and every power. This is when the resurrection of the body will happen. For believers, this is our final salvation. 
Our bodies will rise. We will enter into God's remade and forever perfect creation. Forever to rule and reign with our Savior, King Jesus. For all others, this is damnation. Hear me if you're not a Christian. Your body will rise too one day. But you will not live in the land of light. Second Thessalonians says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, he will inflict vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That is frightful. When Jesus returns, it's curtains. It's over. Everything is over. The rebellion is over. The hurt is over. The heartache is over. Everything is over. And at that point, Jesus himself will deliver the kingdom to his Father after everything is subjected to him. And he himself will subject himself to the Father that God may be all in all. This is where history ends. But honestly, this is where history begins. This is the beginning of a new creation with a new Adam, Christ, and his bride, the church, ruling over a remade world, and all is well, and all will be well, forever. Amen. Now, if you're an insider to Christianity, you know that Christians have different thoughts on the timing of these things. Dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, millennialism. Those are all varying understandings of the ordering of these things, but they all believe these things. This is where history is going. And honestly, isn't that steadying? Isn't that encouraging? Doesn't that strengthen you? Doesn't that actually fire you up? It kind of makes you want to live in light of this reality that's coming that will last forever. With that in mind, Paul wants to drive home the importance of the resurrection in one other way. If there is no resurrection, then there's no sense to the Christian life. Pick it up in 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized in their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. 
I say this to your shame. Here's what Paul's doing. He's pointing out the absurdity of the Christian life if there is no resurrection. So in 29, if there's no resurrection, then it's absurd for people to practice baptism for the dead. Now, what the heck is baptism for the dead? Let me just take a minute here. You really have a couple of options, okay? One is somebody believed in Jesus, died before they could be baptized, and someone in the church is baptized in their stead. I lean towards this view. Two is that this is just talking about normal baptism because believers were dead before they came to Christ and baptism is so closely tied to conversion. Now, I like the theology of that, but it doesn't seem to be the plain reading of the text. It feels a little tortured to me grammatically. Now, here's what I know this isn't. It isn't someone who died as a non-Christian Someone else is baptized in their place, and that baptism ensures salvation for the dead person. That, friends, is not possible. It is appointed for a man once to die, and after that, the judgment, Hebrews. Read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man really wanted to get out of the spot he was in. Not possible. Whatever you decide about Jesus Christ has been decided when you die, period, end of story. There's no going back. So if you've rejected him in life, your fate is sealed in death. Now one other thing, and this is important to note lest you walk away thinking I've said something I haven't said. Paul does not commend this practice. This is not Paul saying, hey, do this. This is Paul just noting that this practice took place by some, and his point in this text is that if there is no resurrection, then whatever they are doing is absolutely absurd. And more than that, we really can't get too much clarity. I just invite you to read the commentaries and then you will walk away eventually thinking that you just need to do something else because nobody knows. So, here's one that clearly connects to us. If there's no resurrection, then it's absurd to risk for the gospel. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Nobody went full tilt for the gospel like Paul. When he was converted... He made it his aim from then on to serve the Lord with zeal, with purpose, and with passion. He made it his aim to embrace the Lord's call to die to self and to live for his glory. He made it his aim to preach the gospel, no matter the opposition that came as a result. And you know what? Lots of opposition did come as a result. By the way, fighting with beasts at Ephesus, I don't think that means Paul could manhandle a lion, okay? In the Old Testament, God's adversaries are depicted as fierce animals wanting to tear God's people in pieces. 
You remember, of course, Satan. What is he referred to as? As a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So what does it mean that he fought with beasts at Ephesus? I think it means that it's, it's a metaphor for contending for the faith in the midst of hostile and angry opponents. And we know something about that. The world is getting increasingly hostile to the message of the gospel. As biblical morality is less and less the morality of the culture, more and more our message can and will bring offense and opposition. But you know what? We will gladly wrestle those beasts. We are willing to endure hostility. We are willing to risk. We are willing to say to our supervisor in June, in Pride Month, Sir, ma'am, I can't put that pride sticker on my uniform. Why are we willing to do that? Because the resurrection is real. And every risk and every cost and every pain will be repaid about a bajillion times over. Jesus is worth it. Risk for the gospel is worth it. Jesus is worth everything. And he's promising to give you, quite literally, the world. But of course, if that's not true, then it's absurd for us to risk. The only thing that makes any sense in that case is to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Translation, live it up. You do you, man. I'll do me. Whatever you do, do it. Remove every restraint. Might as well just go whole hog, bro. That's where this leads. And you know what? It's logical. It's logical if there's no resurrection. But there is a resurrection. Do not be deceived, Paul says. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What Paul says here is, you know what, if there is no resurrection, then the Christian life makes no sense. But, since there is a, since there is a resurrection, it makes no sense to say anything otherwise. And so, Don't be deceived, he says to the Corinthians. You're being influenced. I find this actually really revealing in a very simple way. Do not be deceived, he says. Bad company ruins good morals. What does that mean? It means, I believe, that some of the Corinthians were being influenced to believe that the resurrection wasn't going to happen, not because they were intellectually thinking it through and doing all of the research and reading carefully and examining and attending conferences. It means that some of the Corinthians were believing these things because they were hanging out with people who were influencing them. Who you spend time with determines a lot about what you believe and think and do. And so be mindful 
of who you spend time with. Parents, be mindful of who your kids spend time with. I think we're shocked when our kids don't have a biblical understanding of sexuality and then we look at who they spend their time around. Friends, bad company corrupts good morals. So sometimes we're impacted in what we believe not because we've thought it through but because we've merely been influenced. So a plug for relationships amongst God's people. Friendships amongst God's people. And then Paul says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Essentially, come on, people. Come on, Corinthians. You need to grab a hold of the reality that the resurrection is coming. Some among you don't know this and thus don't know God. You need to know this and you need to know God. And so my question to you is, do you know God? Do you know God as Father? Do you know Him as your Lord and King? If you do, then in eternity and in fleshed, real, embodied eternity of joy in the presence of the Lord is your end. And if you don't, then this is all you will ever have. Whatever this is for you. And so my encouragement to you, if you don't know the Lord, is to receive his offer of peace on this side of Christ's return. To respond to the gospel offer which goes forth day in and day out and goes forth right now, that if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you can be forgiven of your sin and given his righteousness, his holiness, his victory over sin and death and ensured life eternal. My encouragement to you is to entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. And believers, my encouragement to you is that I don't think that we think enough about the resurrection about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again and that ensures the reality that our bodies will be raised and we will be with him. And just to throw myself under the bus, I would include myself in this. When I was interviewing to become the pastor of Redeeming Grace Church, the elders were interviewing me and they asked me to share with them the gospel and I did And Paul said, after I presented it, Paul said, Now, BJ, I'm just kind of giving you the benefit of the doubt. I'm assuming you believe in the resurrection. You just didn't happen to mention it. (laughs) And I was like, I was over the phone, so I was just like, (laughs) Yes, yes, I believe in the resurrection. Yes, yes, I do. Jesus rose, and so too will we. Yes, I believe in that. But it just, it, you know, it slipped, right? It slipped out of the mind because I think sometimes what's out of sight is out of mind. But he's coming.
and every eye will see him. And we will be with him forever. That changes everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have died and risen. And therefore, what we do here is not a sham. It's not a joke. It's not wishful thinking. We don't do it just to feel good about ourselves or to find meaning or purpose. But we do it because you're alive and well and your kingdom is advancing and we are part of that advance. And we will be with you. And so we live and so we labor for your glory with a sure and certain hope of the future. And so we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.